everyone, you are in for such a treat today. I asked Dahlia Kinsey to come on the show to discuss intuitive eating and body positivity. Dahlia is a school dietitian, and as we talked about what was going on at her school, the conversation just flowed into a discussion about food insecurity, racism, how to be a better ally, and the types of biases that we might not even be aware that we have. I think this is such an important conversation, so I hope you stick with us as I lead our conversation off course to touch on this important topic that affects all of us right now. Welcome to Power Up Your Performance, where we talk about how you can learn to think, feel, perform, and live like a champion. Dahlia Kinsey is a school nutrition specialist and health at every size registered dietitian on a mission to make health accessible to all by encouraging body respect and joyful movement. Dahlia worked in public health for years prior to moving to K-12, where she manages special diets, menu planning, social media, and nutrition education for a medium-sized district. She created the School Nutrition Dietitian Podcast to serve as a one-stop shop for best practices and inspiration for professionals in school food service. She uses this platform to not only capture the wisdom of veteran employees that are retiring out, but to stress the importance of offering students evidence-based nutrition education untainted by diet culture. She also has a free intuitive eating guide that I will link in the show notes, and she would like to also share some resources for people wanting to learn how to be better allies and fight racism, and I'll put all of that in the show notes. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the show, Dahlia. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm glad to be here. So you are a health at every size registered dietitian. Can you talk to us a little bit about what health at every size means and why that's really important? So health at every size is kind of a different framework for wellness in relation to body weight and nutrition, and it's more evidence-based. So there's research to support that if you focus on lifestyle habits and you don't focus on weight, you get better health outcomes. There's a lot that we've come to think is scientific about weight that really is based more on cultural preference commercial things that have been pushed towards us and just misinformation. So feeling bad about your body and ragging on other people when you think they're overweight doesn't promote health. That's been well established. So health at every size isn't telling everyone, hey, just eat Twinkies all day and be as big as possible. It's telling people that whatever body you're in is fine, accept it focus on these things that we know promote health, which is finding a way to move that is joyful and enjoyable, not beating yourself up and over-exercising. Sometimes people get injured when they're obsessed with the idea of being thin because they think thin equals healthy or because they think thin equals beautiful. And like that's the only way to really be accepted. So my whole mission is to help people see that body weight and health aren't inextricably linked and it isn't helpful ever to just focus on the weight. Very interesting. Yes. I really, really like that. We recently had a situation where my 19 year old daughter was getting ready to go have a shoulder surgery and she had to go to a cardiologist to be cleared for surgery because she was, it was, it's a long story, but anyway, she's fine, but she had to be cleared. And in the notes that the cardiologist made about her, he made a comment about her unhealthy BMI, which I think is crazy because for one, she's completely healthy. But can you address a little bit about why even body mass index is not a good metric to use for health at every size? So BMI is really just a number that summarizes the relationship between your height and your weight. And it doesn't include anything beyond that. So your BMI could be high if you have a lot of muscle mass. Your BMI could be high if you're just very short 
and you're very comfortable in your body. All of your other labs look great and you're just a petite person. It's easy for your BMI to fall into the unhealthy range, but it's an arbitrary measure because there isn't a clear cause and effect relationship between a high BMI and poor health outcomes. There's a difference between causation and correlation. And this is something that people who work in any kind of science-based field, we all know this just because it looks like every time we see one negative health outcome, this other thing is also there. That doesn't mean that one caused the other. So a perfect example is if you say people with yellow teeth frequently have lung cancer or they have a higher risk of lung cancer. Yellow teeth does not cause cancer. You might have yellow teeth because you smoke. What if the relationship is between the smoking and the cancer? Well, obviously we all know the relationship is between the smoking and the cancer, not the teeth color. So looking at BMI and saying it causes all these things when it's frequently present with certain conditions there's an issue there. So there could be a lot of things that explain why high body weight and poor health outcomes keep showing up in the same spot. One reason could be when you have a high body weight, people are constantly giving you a hard time about that. You struggle with low self-esteem. You have poor access to higher income jobs. I mean, there's a lot, people who are very large, have experienced discrimination on a level that someone who's just a little plump is unfamiliar with. Mm -hmm. So people who are very big can tell you that being large and having this high BMI affects every area of their life. It affects the type of health care they get, the quality of care they get. So even I, when I was probably like a size 12, I was already considered obese according to the chart because I'm not very tall. And I was actually having symptoms related to an autoimmune condition that hadn't been diagnosed. But whenever I went for care with a symptom related to this disease, people would say, well, you know, you should probably look at losing some weight. And so because the fatness was all they could see, I wasn't given care, even though I had the money for, to access health care. Because of that little layer of discrimination, I wasn't able to access treatment. So there is definitely a level of, a lot can be explained by the fact that if you go to the doctor and you're fat and you have a migraine, someone will tell you to lose weight and you may or may not get treatment for the migraine. I've known people to go to the doctor with a broken foot and they were told to focus on weight loss. It wasn't an open fracture, so they didn't know it was broken. They just knew they were having extreme pain in that area. And so they went for care, and they said, oh, yeah, your joints and stuff, they probably hurt because you're overweight, you're obese. And they had to go to another physician to actually get an X-ray to get the treatment that they needed. The fact that you don't even hear someone's symptoms when they come in and tell you, I'm in pain, and all you see is that they're fat, this is probably their fault. That is a major issue in the healthcare community, and I think a lot of the problems that are being blamed on obesity may have more to do with discrimination. And then there's other levels of discrimination that are piled on top of that. When you see that high body weight in lower income communities, and because people of color and people in marginalized communities are more at risk for being in that impoverished group, then it's even worse, the poor treatment that you get when you go to the physician. Let's say you do have access to care, but it's been documented that if you are a gay person, if you are a trans person, the type of treatment that you get, it's frequently not equal to what a cis straight person might get. And if your access to good jobs is low, maybe you have an insurance plan that doesn't cover as much Or maybe people assume that you can't cover as much and they're less inclined to give you equal care. So I think there's a lot of things that we blame on weight that are probably more related to environment and how humans treat other humans. We have a long history of being mean creatures. (laughs) Wow. That is 
really deep when you think about all the cause and effect and all of the layers that we need to peel back on this topic that somebody might initially look at and go, oh, they're just talking about being nice or they're just talking about body mass index. I mean, there's a lot of layers here to what we're talking about. Yeah, there really is. And I know for one thing, I mean, there are times in, I can even say in my lifetime that I might've been a little bit in denial about this, but I think America has made it very clear what our true value system is here. When you really want to get something done, you need money to get it done. And when someone suddenly is motivated to do something, to think that, and I mean more organizations, if a large organization is motivated to do something, because an organization can't have a conscience, it's not a person, right? So what usually drives the motivations of large companies, what drives the motivations of large organizations that receive funding from other companies? It's money, it's profit, it isn't health, it isn't you know, quality of life and how happy will this make the people that we serve and we do business with. It's money. So you have to be very skeptical when you look at what is being pushed in front of you as super important and a crisis. It's probably generating a lot of income for some organizations, for some companies. Otherwise, no one would care enough for you to know about it. Like if we really think of all the things that you care about in your life that bring you so much joy, but only now that people can form community around, you know, things that you're interested in online, can you really get things like that? So if you love dog grooming or pet grooming or something like that, there isn't some massive company that always has cool new dog grooming things available for you on television. That's something that, you know, there's not a ton of money to be made there. That's something that people love to do, something that people are interested in. You can find communities online to talk about it. But someone who isn't interested in that and passionate about that knows nothing about it, knows that there's no special way to groom a dog. The rest of us have no clue about it because there's no reason for us to know because there isn't a huge money-making opportunity there. So we just need to be really skeptical and use our critical thinking skills and know if you've never seen a commercial for broccoli, even though everyone says they're so concerned about everybody's eating habits, what's up with that? You know, there's, there's no money to be made there. That's what's up with that. (laughs) Very, very good point. So switching gears just slightly, you are also a school nutrition specialist. And I would love it if you could tell us just a little bit about how COVID-19 affected you early on when all the schools were shutting down and how that's still affecting your school district. So it has been really interesting. At the beginning of the COVID crisis, it became really clear that we didn't have anything in place to prepare us for this type of emergency management situation. So the way school nutrition works, we don't receive any funds from the USDA until we've served a student. So all of our funding is based on participation. That's really not an issue. That system works perfectly when everybody's in the school and you can convince them with your marketing or with what you have available, convince them to come into the cafeteria. That's pretty easy. They're right there. Mm -hmm. But when your funding depends on how many meals you serve and your kids are scattered across the county and buses aren't running because school is out, and everyone is quarantining and sheltering in place, it's, it, was, it was a big issue trying to figure out, well, what do we do next? So in my state, and in, I think in all states, people who work in school nutrition were considered essential workers. So even if your town was locked down, we still needed to go to work. And we needed that freedom to do that. Otherwise, there was literally no way to feed the children. So Food insecurity is a big issue in the United States. There's a lot of people that don't have access to three meals a day, two meals a day. And it isn't just people who are down and out and homeless. People have this picture of a hungry person as someone who somehow did it to themselves. Maybe they had a drug abuse problem and they ended up on the street. Who knows? The things that we imagine about people who don't have enough, they're not accurate. Of course, sometimes it's true. But number one, if you're a child, you you don't have a job. All children are in a vulnerable position. 
And during COVID, a lot of parents were losing their jobs. And then in addition to that, if you are a person who is working, both parents are working, and then suddenly there was no access to healthcare and your kids weren't going to school, then that became an additional issue. So some people lost jobs because they needed to be home watching their kids. Some people had to just decide what they thought was the right thing to do and just went to work and left their kid unsupervised. You know, it was a bad situation all the way around. People had to make less than ideal decisions sometimes. So there were just a ton of kids in our community that we knew needed food and we wanted to reach them. But it was very difficult because of how large the district is and the transportation issue and then the fear of maybe us getting exposed and then we're traveling all over town. Mm-hmm. Or even the kids would come out to get the food. They didn't have masks on. This is before everyone was understanding that they should wear masks. And we know that some people still don't believe it. But anyway, and even though we were all wearing masks, kids were coming together to pick up and they were side shoulder to shoulder. So it's been a huge learning curve, but we've come up with lots of adaptations like drive-through pickups, which is an issue in a town where people don't have a lot of cars because you used to use public transportation. Like if you're somewhere like San Francisco or something. So in every town, there were different hurdles to clear figuring out how do we manage this? Because a lot of times school nutrition is like the first line of defense against hunger in a crisis. So if there's a tornado or something or there are hurricanes, you probably can be sheltered at a school system and you can get emergency feeding through the school system. Well, that's funded a totally different way. And usually it takes a good while for us to apply for those funds. But because we typically have food, it makes sense that we're like the first line for that. But no one had any concept of what to do if the crisis, one, lasts for weeks and weeks and months and maybe a year or year and then some. And no one knew what to do if it was a crisis where being in close proximity to each other was a danger. So in a a different crisis, people could have come, you know, to our central kitchen and been fed. That was a no-go in this one. So it's been really interesting and it's been good for in some ways in that I think it's made the industry stronger. We're doing a lot of problem solving. We're working with our vendors to get, you know, our orders filled because even the food supply chain, it's still up and running. We all know that, but there's some issues in the supply chain because people are getting sick and it's affecting manufacturing. And then, you know, people want more pre-packaged things. So there's less contact with the customer and the client. And it's, it's fascinating how creative people can be when they need to come up with a solution in a short period of time. But it's also very interesting how some people just still don't believe that it's a good thing to do to feed hungry children. There, there there's some people who still just, they don't support that. They think that it's the parent's responsibility and sure. Yes. But if it's not happening, then what, like, what if this is our, you know, future, you never know what a child is going to do with their lives. We could really be shooting ourselves in the foot, not setting everybody up for success. You don't know what solutions this child is going to create for us in the future. You don't know what their potential is just because they have parents that either are unable to feed them or who are not concerned about them. That's none of our business. It doesn't matter why it's not happening. We just want to make sure that the kids are fed. And if you aren't fed, it inhibits your growth. It inhibits your ability to learn. Your body is going to prioritize survival, not brain development. If you're barely getting by on calories and everybody knows how grumpy and unfocused you are when you're really hungry and you're in a meeting where they just won't shut up, you know? (laughs) So imagine being a kid in a classroom and someone's trying to teach you about world history and your stomach's rumbling or you're getting lightheaded because the last time you ate was, you know, lunch the day before. 
and you had to walk yourself to the bus stop or, or to the school because you know, buses don't, buses don't pull up to your house. Mm -hmm. There is a set range. Like if you live within a mile of the school, you have to walk or somebody has to give you a ride. So that means some kids walk in the rain a mile to school. And, you know, when, when I was in high school, I lived like three blocks from school. Um, so it was no problem for me to walk, but I was always surprised at how far other people had to come. Mm -hmm. And my mother would have given me a ride, but she's like, I can see the school from here. The bye, like it's not happening. I'm not pulling you up there. Put on your raincoats three blocks away. But I just can't imagine having to do everything on my own as a child. And I saw kids like that when I was a kid. There were kids who had missed the bus that were on our route to elementary school, and my mom would always stop and pick them up. And I remember this one kid who would always get so mad at my mom for picking him up because he always smelled horrible. And my mom would tell us, you know, when you see somebody who needs something or who needs help and you can give help, why wouldn't you? He's literally on our way. He, his parents obviously don't take him to school. They obviously didn't wake him up, which is why he misses the bus so often. Because you know how hard it is to get up when you're a kid. It's like, it's impossible, right? And they want you to get up at the crack of dawn to go to school. But he would smell bad probably because his parents didn't wash his clothes. Yeah. I honestly, I don't know what that child situation was. And he was younger than me. So I was never in his class or anything. My mom just insisted on continually picking up him up to take him to school. And naturally people are selfish, maybe not everybody, but I was a selfish child. And I'm like, I don't really care what he needs. He smells funny, mom. I really wish he would knock this off. But well, in hindsight, show up at school with the smelly kid getting out of yes. there. Because then you're associated. I mean, just like in the mindset of a little kid, right? That is true. That is so true. And it's just so funny how we give kids a hard time for just being sincere and being human because we don't want to admit that a lot of us are still like that. Um, but when you see a kid being obnoxious in that way, it's easy for us to point it out because the rest of us, when we grow up, we just learn not to say these things out loud. Um, but in hindsight, I think, well, what a good lesson. And now as an adult, I think about kids her, who are in a similar situation to him. And if adults who can help don't intervene, you're just out there on your own. And I wonder if he was able to finish school and if he was able to go to college, but he had all these barriers. Parents that aren't helping you even get up in the morning, get dressed. They don't wash your clothes. You don't eat when you go home at night. That's a lot to overcome. Yeah. So I might be completely off base and I'm, not, I'm probably going to say this wrong even, but when I think of things like defund the police, I think that we need to go all the way back to exactly what you're talking about, reallocating funds to make sure that we're taking care of our most vulnerable populations so, so that the kids are fed, the parents don't have to worry about how they're going to pay whatever bill to put food on the table, you know, so that we can take care of all of these things so that we don't even get into a situation where when the kid is 15 years old, they're having a situation with the police. I mean, that, that, all, that all makes sense to me. But I think with the defund the police, the issue is, it's, maybe it's an associated issue to what you said, but it's not the same issue. Right. Because there are children who have grown up in wonderful households, had all the advantages, did everything they were supposed to do, went to college, and didn't even run a red light, but got stopped because they were in a car that someone thought was too nice for them to be in. Yeah, so I think that's a, that's a common thing that I think a lot of people are thinking because it is true that minority people, or I'm just going to say black people, because that's really the focus right now with BLM mm -hmm. and with defunding the police being something that we're seeing a lot of people put out there as a possible solution to some of the problems that we're seeing. But like in my life, I know people say, I don't know why you would be upset because your life is fine and you have access to all kinds of things that I don't have. Mm -hmm. The thing is, it doesn't matter if I went to college and if I have a professional position, when I go out in the world, people treat me poorly because of the color of my skin. 
And I know a lot of people still can't believe it because they feel like they don't personally do it, but it is like a death by a thousand cuts. It's the little things, even from people that I consider to be nice and progressive and open-hearted who say things like, oh, how many kids do you have? That's the first question. Instead of, do you have children? The assumption is, I'm a black woman. I must have kids. I must have lots of kids. And they probably have multiple dads or even oh, are you the first one in your family to go to college? That assumption, not even are you. Um, what is it like to be the first one? Who said? You know, it's, it's kind of constant because there's this messaging everywhere about Black people being less than and down in the dumps. And we don't hear things about all the great things that are happening in the Black community. And we frequently don't hear about all the people who followed all the rules and were still murdered. So I don't feel protected by my degree. I don't feel protected by my qualifications. And when I go shopping, I know that I have to dress up. I can't go in my exercise clothes. I can't go casual because that opens me up to more abuse. I've been stopped leaving the store more times than I can even number. And when no one else was stopped, I've gone to rest stops or gas stations because I like to travel a lot and been told that the bathrooms were out of order. And then my husband comes in and he's white and they give him the keys. I know it's an opposite gender bathroom, but they said like all the bathrooms were out of order because if the women's bathroom was closed, I would have said, well, what about the men's? I need to go to the bathroom. So anyway, it's just, it's pervasive. And I think a lot of people don't know that it doesn't matter if you are super, super well behaved. The racism makes you vulnerable to attack. It makes you vulnerable to a lot of negative outcomes that you can't buy yourself out of. You can't escape it. So I would like to see a focus on breaking down that cultural pattern that we have here in America to put one ethnic group on a pedestal and then to tell everyone else that's not really what's happening. I've met students who came to the U.S. who moved here from Africa who said they were shocked when they got here to see how many black people there were because they didn't know there were any black Americans because of how low the representation is in the American films that they see abroad. When I travel abroad and I tell people I'm American, they like don't get it. They think I'm some kind of immigrant. And technically my mom happens to be, but that's like purely coincidental. My dad is a black American that's been here for as long as we can remember. But people have no concept of that. People will think I'm Brazilian or I'm some, some nationality that they think has a significant black population. So even that low representation, we have to think about the psychological damage that that does to people just not being seen, not being validated and thinking that, well, something must be wrong with the way that I am if nobody who looks like me is put out there as someone who has an interesting story to tell or someone who gets to be the center of the narrative and something fictional. Like It runs really deep, the the damage that racism has done to people's emotional well-being and to their health. And it doesn't really get focused on because, again, where's the money in that? There would be a need for there to actually be some work done and some changes brought about that wouldn't make any money. So essentially, who cares? And it's been really interesting to me to see that so many people had no nothing to say about all of these murders that we're recently seeing come out one by one by one where the common factor is excessive force and the person murdered is black. No real concern, at least in the circles that I'm in and I'm in a pretty integrated area and a lot of people that I really love had nothing to say about that. And then as soon as there was property damage and there was news coverage of rioting and looting, then they're concerned. Yeah. So there's no concern about human life, but concern about property. Is property more important to us than human life? 
And then I will also say, let's use our critical thinking skills and thank goodness for the internet and thank goodness for the gatekeepers essentially being gone when it comes to sharing information. It's good and it's bad because there's a lot of misinformation, but then there's a lot of live video showing that a lot of the looting is being done by agitators that are in no way connected to this social justice movement. Mm -hmm. And, but then too, that kind of goes back to if we weren't in a place where we believe that black people need to behave in order to have access to human rights, then it wouldn't work, you know, that continually to focus on this loss of property and this bad behavior, quote unquote, Mm-hmm. If we weren't a nation that has believed and shown again and again and again that we believe in order for you to get any care or consideration, if you aren't part of this majority group, you must be on your best behavior. If that wasn't one of our values, we wouldn't even skip a beat when we saw that like, oh, you know, there's looting, whatever. We'd be like, okay, and what? There's a real issue here. But the fact of the matter is we value property over human life. And we think that black people need to behave in order for us to even consider listening to them, which is another reason why so many of the people in my life, I have so many white friends who are telling me I had no idea this was going on. Really? Because when I told you, like, I think they didn't give me the key to the bathroom but they gave it to you. And that's a problem. You said, Oh, maybe they didn't, maybe they didn't know when they just finished fixing it, you know? So people have told you there was an issue and you kept brushing it off. So I'm like, I don't believe you. And then if that happens to you as an individual and I know every, well, maybe not everyone, every woman, regardless of ethnicity, because that's a marginalized group too. You have told a man something that's happened that you felt like was related to your gender. And then he gaslit you and told you that wasn't what happened. <laughs> you do that again and again and again. And then eventually you say, what, what am I doing? I, why, why bother? Then you stop saying it. So then maybe you meet other men in your professional life. Something negative happens at work, whether it's sexual harassment, being passed up for a promotion, being talked over in a meeting or giving an idea. Nobody wants it. Your male colleague says it all of a sudden it's brilliant When that starts to happen down the road, you've had so many years of being silenced, you don't even say anything. And you might be in a room with a male ally who would back you up this time, but you're so traumatized from all that being ignored, being silenced, you don't even say anything. So at this point, it's hard for me to keep track of who in my life doesn't know that I experienced racism because they ignored me and silence me. And who doesn't know? Because by the time I had a negative experience in their presence, I wasn't speaking up anymore. Like I can't even keep track. Yeah. 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 And I think that that, not that exact situation, but just the feeling of being silenced so many times, that should be an aspect of this that everybody should be able to relate to because we've all been in those situations, but I'm, you don't need to imagine, but for the rest of us, imagine what happens to you if you're getting that, you're getting that message repeatedly over your lifetime. Yeah. It's very depressing. Yeah. It's very depressing. Yeah. And it's just interesting to me. We know so much more now than we did years ago about what chronic stress does to the body. And to ignore that people in marginalized groups are under serious ongoing chronic stress. And maybe that's the explanation for the difference in health outcomes. Not the only explanation, but one of the explanations to ignore that in public health, I think is really irresponsible. And yet here we are, like people keep ignoring it. And I just, I know for me, I'm a very intersectional person. So I don't want to close myself off from any group of people. And I don't want for people who maybe haven't had the bad experiences I have to feel guilty because they, you know, it's not your fault. Like no one asks for whatever identity they're born into. And if you have access to a lot of privilege, it's normal not to notice. I saw someone made a great explanation or gave a good explanation of what it's like to have privilege but not notice. And they said, like the whole world, or at least the United States, I don't really know the whole world, 
the United States is biased against people, left-handed people. It's not to say people hate left-handed people, but I know from left-handed people that years ago, they used to force you to become like ambidextrous and use your right hand in school. And there were people who believed like weird negative things about left-handed people. So I don't think that is as big of an issue now. However, most scissors are still for right-handed people. Almost like 99% of deaths especially the old school ones where you go in one way, they're for right-handed people. And usually the way seating set up in in a restaurant is for right-handed people. And when that person explained that to me, I could honestly say, I've never noticed that. Why? Because I'm right-handed. You don't notice when everything's set up in your favor or for your convenience. Why would you? That's like a human thing. You don't notice until there's a problem, really. But we're capable of being empathetic if we, you know, listen to the people around us and see what we can do to basically support everyone. One of my big things is that the same way that sexism also hurts men, racism also hurts white people. And this is a system that needs to go because it's destroying our country. It's destroying lives. It's ruining health. And it doesn't really help anyone. You know, men are so limited by what sexism says is okay for them to do, but they don't realize it's a limitation because of the ways it helps them sometimes and gives them privilege. But it's not a good thing. When you think about men who really want to connect with other people, but they are afraid to express themselves because that could be seen as feminine. And everybody knows that feminine is inferior to masculine. At least that's the narrative, right? right? And think of all the men who really have more of a feminine nature, who think they need to hide that. Or all the men who never really feel connected to a partner because they won't tell them anything because they were told boys don't communicate. So right. even though sexism is way harder on women it's not really doing men as many favors as the people who fight for sex with them think it does. Mm-hmm. You know, it's bad for everybody. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for going off on that little tangent <laughs> with me because it's been very enlightening and I think it's a really valuable conversation. So I thank you for that because you came on to talk to me about nutrition and, and I made you have a whole different conversation. Well, I I really appreciate like the way content creators are being flexible because we all had our schedules, right? For our podcasts and then everything changed. So we want to keep working on the stuff we're passionate about, but then we also want to acknowledge, you know, what's going on right now. So we kind of combine the evergreen subject matter with the really timely subject matter. Yeah, I agree. I think that's important. So you also work with people on intuitive eating. Talk to me about intuitive eating and why diets don't work. Diets really impose limits that are unnatural and get you to obsess about food in a way that also is not natural and ignore your cues. So all the time on a diet, you have to get comfortable with just being hungry or just get comfortable with being unsatisfied and not getting something that hits the spot. But that is not sustainable. You will not be able to do that forever. And then on top of the fact that after you quit the diet, the weight comes back, it erodes your self-esteem and it erodes your confidence in yourself to feed yourself. So it does damage on a lot of levels, but then it also stresses your body. It's much more work for your body to keep fluctuating with weight. So there are a lot of people who are in larger bodies that have never dieted, how they managed to resist, you know, all the propaganda, who knows, but who have fabulous blood work. And then there are other people who are relatively thin for the moment because they're on their, you know, they're on the upswing. Most of us know the upswing. Most of us have dieted who really are struggling because it is so unhealthy to keep your weight on that yo-yo. 
So with intuitive eating, you learn to look inward for cues to eat. And so for kids, unfortunately, this can be tricky because people are always telling you when to eat. Luckily, when you're at school, they're not telling you how much, but sometimes even at home, you know, people tell you how much, well, you have to hear your, clear your plate. Mm-hmm. What if you're already stuffed? What if you would eat it later? I do know some people who, when their kid says they don't want any more, they just put it in a Tupperware and they say, you can have it later. Okay, fine. A lot of times they didn't want the rest of it because it wasn't their favorite part of the meal. But then sometimes people will go back and eat the rest later. Children know exactly when they've had enough. Everyone's seen a baby with a bottle leaning all the way back because they're done or swatting it away Mm because they're done. Naturally, we all know how to feed ourselves. And it's something that's trained out of us. We're pressured to eat at a certain time of day. Maybe you're not hungry then. You better hurry up and eat it now because you don't know when you're going to eat again. Stuff like that triggers overeating because you're trying to compensate for, you're trying not to be hungry in the future. If you know that food is always available and you can have as much as you want and stop, and if you really settle into that and believe it, it completely changes how you relate to food. Then when you see a cupcake or you see someone's having a birthday cake in the office, you don't lose your mind and eat it until you're nauseous because you can have cake anytime. You're grown. You can go get a cupcake. You don't have to eat you know, this banned food when it appears in the office for free because a lot of us are so afraid of certain foods that have been off limits on a diet that we won't buy them. We won't bring them into the house. We don't trust ourselves around them. We're afraid of them. But when that food shows up for free in our environment, we freak out and go to town. And you've even seen on diets, some people will just completely fall off your friend radar because they're doing so much work to avoid the foods that are on that prohibited list that they can't even have a normal relationship with food and social environments. So the beauty of intuitive eating is if something crazy happens in your life, there's no wagon to fall off of. This is just the way that you eat. So what do you do with little kids so that they don't even get started on this crazy train here? Do you, if all they want is chicken nuggets and goldfish, do you feed them that? I mean, because I know that a lot of this is also that there's not good foods and bad foods, but how do you encourage fruits and vegetables and things that lean toward the more nutritious without starting them on this whole mindset that there's good and bad food? I think the good thing is to have the foods that you would prefer that they eat easily accessible. So you say like, this is a snack bowl. You don't even tell them like, we're doing healthy snacks. No, this is a snack bowl and it's got fresh fruit in it. Or if they're really small and you know, they can't handle all that stuff on their own, that you pre-cut the fruit for them and you put it in special, you know, shatterproof containers in the fridge. Say, this is your shelf. You know, whenever you get hungry, just come in here and get this. And have the other foods. Another good thing to do is have the low nutrient foods be labor intensive to make. So say, yeah, we can have cookies. We just have to make them. So don't keep the ready to eat cookies in the house. Keep all the ingredients to make cookies in the house. And then they can work with you on it and just start to see, hey, these really high calorie fun foods take some time. That's why we save them for special occasions. And don't even address it. Like, don't even tell them what you're doing. Just keep doing it until that becomes this normal thing. Setting, making something, restricting something or making something taboo ups your interest in it. So Mm -hmm. saying like, well, we don't eat that or you can't have that could cause them to fixate on it. And then they'll look for it when they're away from you with their friends or whatever. So really just controlling what comes into the house. Because as the adult, what your job is, is to control the quality of the food. You control what comes in. But you don't have to be over how much. You can give them what you're comfortable with them eating and let them have it until they're done. And then you can try the leftovers thing. Try the you can come back when you want more. One of the big things I see with little kids is when they go through growth spurts, 
they eat so much food. It can be disturbing to watch. Like you could be afraid that <laughs> their, their weight is going to go through the roof. They're not even going to be able to get around. But a lot of times you'll gain a little bit of weight before your height goes up. So if they're really hungry, just give them access to the types of foods you want them to have. And you can make them beautiful. You can, depending on how crafty you are. I know some people who like to make animals out of the food, or you can look on Pinterest to look for the fun things that a kid could do. Everybody knows ants on a log, which at this point adults may be bored with, but you would be surprised. Somebody who's three might still think that's pretty fun to do raisins, peanut butter, and celery and try and make shapes or turn it into a little critter that they can eat and make it fun. Just try and make the healthy food more fun. And then two, you might want to look at how advertisers very effectively get in the heads of children and restrict that sort of thing. So if you, I remember this shows my age. Remember when there was a cereal with the chef from the Muppets? It was advertised really, really heavily. It was so nasty. So this didn't last long, but we were obsessed. We were convinced we need this cereal. It's going to be so great. Just because they kept playing it on Nickelodeon, we thought we needed it. And the little puppet chef kept advertising the cereal. It looks very fun. Um, and we already had a favorite cereal, but we harassed our mom until she brought that home. And it just happened to be like a low sugar kind of kicks type of thing. <laughs> we weren't interested, but it's so easy for your kids' minds to be hijacked and fixated on a product because of the toy it comes with, because of the packaging it comes with, because of the character that they like that's associated with it. So you can let them try that stuff, but you want to control how often you bring it in. And then too, you might try and explain to them on a kid-friendly level what advertising is. And they still might want it. I mean, these marketers are very savvy. They're very good at capturing the attention of their audience. But just try and start telling them what's going on. Like the things that are on TV, you know, that play in between. This is to get your attention. That Maybe it looks like fun, but it might not be that fun. They're just trying to sell things or however it makes sense for communicating with the child. I know there are resources out there about it. I can't think of a good way... <laughs> To phrase it. I right. haven't been around a three-year-old in a long time, but I, I'm sure there's there's a way. Yeah, well, that's why I was asking about the questions about how do you get a little kid to eat what you want them to without starting them on that whole judging food and that whole thing. My daughters, my my youngest is 16, and my daughters have been babysitting for the little kids across the street. Oh, cool. Amazing how much you forget about having a toddler. <laughs> They're so interesting. Isn't that like, it's a fascinating age because two to three, you're really starting to sen have a sense of self and your personalities popping out and you want independence. So you want to direct your own feeding and no becomes your favorite word because you're like, wow, I can control my environment. I have power. No, 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 no. And to try and take that freedom away from them, that's not a battle you're going to win. They've got all day. They don't have a job. If you try and force them to do something, I don't know if you can win. If you try to coerce them, if you try to razzle-dazzle them with a better option, then you can win. But taking up a fight with a toddler, haha, good luck. <laughs> you're going to be exhausted from work and being an adult. They've got all day. <laughs> Yeah, they come home from babysitting every day and they just collapse. They had no idea taking care of little kids was so hard. It's really quite rewarding to me as a mother to see it. <laughs> see it. Tell them to imagine what it was like if they had real responsibilities. Because other women who have children are in their 20s with a job or with, mm -hmm. you know, real life problems. If it wore you out and you're a teenager and you got to send them away, just imagine what I did, you know? Oh, right. Well, this has been such a great conversation. I feel like we didn't even touch on most of the things that we had planned on talking about. Is there anything else that you want to talk about before we finish up here? I just 
just want to remind everybody to be really kind to themselves. I've seen a lot of people just attacking people who are trying to do something positive or say something nice or say something compassionate. We've got to make room for people who make mistakes. There's plenty of space for grace. Like just do the best that you can treating your body well, treating yourself well, being kind to your neighbors, your family, your fellow countrymen. Don't beat yourself up. Just do the best that you can. And yeah, when you love yourself, which I know is hard to do and it's a tall order, it's so much easier for you to be kind to others. And it's so much easier for you to tolerate criticism because you know your worth. You love yourself. It's okay to make mistakes. That doesn't invalidate you or your worth. And remember that your kids do listen to some of the things that you say, but what they soak up the most is what you do. You can't fool them. If you tell them you're beautiful and don't worry about what the kids say at school, but then they see that you don't think that you're beautiful, they know where they came from. If mom thinks that her body's ugly and I look like mom, you cannot talk your child out of believing what you have shown them. So just remember how powerful your actions are and that you can tell them to love themselves all day. But if you don't love yourself, that's going to be really difficult for them. Yeah, I love that. And then will you make sure, um, tell everybody how they can find you. You have some great resources and the podcast. So tell them. Yes. So on Facebook and Instagram, I can be found at, at School Nutrition RD. And I do some things focused on child nutrition there. It's a lot of stuff for people in the industry, but I'm expanding more into wellness for parents and for kids. And it's at Body Liberation RD if you just want to see all of my intersectional love yourself stuff. And if you would like a free guide, to kind of getting yourself into intuitive eating, go to www.daliakinsey.com slash guilt-free. And there you can get your guide. It's totally free and it's a great place to start. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for all of the great work you were doing. I think that what you were doing is so important. And I just really appreciate you spending time with us today. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for taking time out of your day to listen. I'm Coach Kim Peek of Power of Run, and you can find me at www.crushingmygoals.com or on all social media as at sign power of run. If you liked this episode, be sure to give the podcast some love over on iTunes and remember to subscribe. As a new podcast, your reviews and stars and subscribes will help me grow the audience so that I can share my love of health and fitness and bring more experts to the show. Power up your week, and I will catch you next Tuesday.